Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Seventy-five years. That's the nothing personal word of the day for Friday, April 15th. Not tax day, but it's Good Friday. It's also the first Seder is tonight. Happy Passover to those who celebrate. Get ready for some matzah, some Manischewitz cakes, some Manischewitz wine. A little story about the plagues. But really today, not really, it's a bunch of stuff going on today. It's Mets opening day on April 15th. It's Jackie Robinson Day in Major League Baseball. And it's 75 years since Jackie Robinson broke the color barrier. That's what they call it. Jackie Robinson became the first African-American player to play for a Major League Baseball team. There used to be the Negro Leagues. Totally segregated was baseball. Finally, one black player went to the Brooklyn Dodgers, started in first base, on April 15th, just 75 years ago. It's really unbelievable if you think about it. He had one hell of a career. He was an all-star, played for 10 years, first ballot Hall of Famer. But one of the previous shows we did on an April 15th, we talked about the core values that Jackie Robinson had and how at the Marlins and at a bunch of other teams, we actually teach kids through books that have been written about him, by his family. We've had family members, Sharon Robinson, his daughter, come talk to kids, come talk to employees about the core values of Jackie Robinson. But there's some stuff about him that I'd like to tell you that maybe you don't think about much and it has nothing to do with him as a baseball player. That's the irony of athletes. Sort of side note here, Coca. We define these guys, we just use them and abuse them, right? They come, they're young. They're great for us as long as they can be our hero. And after they can't hit shots or throw passes or hit home runs, they're done. There are hundreds and thousands of players who just disappear into the atmosphere. They don't have official retirement ceremonies. They don't get jerseys or motorcycles or pictures. They don't have their numbers retired. They don't get to the Hall of Fame. They just sort of go live the rest of their lives. And I think that we don't understand how difficult that can be when you have gone from Major League Baseball or any professional athlete where you are catered to, where you are beloved for no reason other than your athleticism or a skill that you may possess that doesn't translate anywhere in any way. Not everybody can be a coach after being a player or be a manager or a general manager or front office or analytics. Some people just go and have to make a living like the majority of players It is one of the great misconceptions that all professional athletes are rich. It is the tiny, tiny top majority. Remember when we talk about sports as a society 
and I've talked to you about how we would view our clubhouse as a community and it would be reflective of society. Yes, there are a bunch of people like Elon Musk who can spend $43 billion on Twitter or a bunch of people who can spend 518 grand on a football, more on that later. But the majority of people are paycheck to paycheck trying to figure it out. Unsure of where they're going, unsure of where they've been, why they've been, where they've been, and how it is they're going to get to where they think they want to get to. And then when they get to it, they don't want to be there. They win the lottery, but then they lose all the money and they realize it's better not to win the lottery. They want to have an extraordinary life until they do, and then they want to be ordinary. They want to hide. Everybody believes the grass is always greener, but there's so much going on everywhere. We just lose track. Jackie Robinson, once his career was over, he was very, very involved both charitably and in business. Do you know that he was one of the first heads, the first African-American head of a publicly traded company? I think I have that exactly right. It was called Chuck Full of Nuts. And that used to be, and I don't, I don't think it still is, but it used to be a, a some sort of, I thought it was a coffee company. But I was thinking about what Jackie Robinson had to do and how the responsibility that he felt for the role he played in baseball and how significant that was. Yet he had to then continue on with his life, figuring out what he was going to do in business. And he ended up, he was very politically involved. Jackie Robinson, ironically, was conservative for most of his life. Voted for Richard Nixon type of thing. It's funny. Everyone just assumes that, oh, if you had to break the color barrier, then you have to be liberal then. You have to be a Democrat. No, he was not. He was a Republican. He ended up switching later in life, but as many people do. Many people are Republicans until they get wealthy and then they turn into Democrats. It's a sort of general statement, but it's not altogether untrue. Think about it. So today in City Field, they will celebrate 75 years since Jackie Robinson broke in with the Brooklyn Dodgers, who then unceremoniously left Brooklyn, of course, and became the Los Angeles Dodgers. Inside City Field, if you've never been there, is something called the Jackie Robinson Rotunda. When we were putting together Marlins Park, we were thinking about what we were going to put there and what we were going to honor, who we were going to honor. We ended up doing something about the Orange Bowl because that's where the building was. Basically, we did an honor to Miami, to the location. The owner who built City Field, Fred Wilpon and his son, Jeff Wilpon, Fred Wilpon's had a, is an older man now, about 85 years old, but Jackie Robinson and the Brooklyn Dodgers were his team. So they made an entire Jackie Robinson rotunda. Think about how strange that is. It was as strange for me when the Miami Heat retired Michael Jordan's number. Not the whole league, like the way the whole league retired Jackie Robinson's 42, but just the Heat retired number 23 in honor of someone who crushed him. It's very strange when you honor somebody who didn't play on your team. But the, what the Mets did, if you go to that rotunda, it becomes a museum. And one of the things that matters to an owner, when you're the owner, you get to do it, was the provenance of baseball, the provenance of breaking the color barrier. And you walk through the rotunda and you realize the impact that Jackie Robinson had. But in addition to feeling really good about what you're seeing, it always struck me 
as I would walk through the rotunda, because we'd play the Mets in New York nine times a year. I was always in the Mets division. It would always strike me as I'm walking through, how do I feel about loving a sport where progress was needed, not in terms of play on the field, but in terms of the acts of owners? How do I feel about taking the reins of a team or in a league where we required someone to break the color barrier because we felt as though we, we, collective we, is it we? This is the fight I'm having in my head. Is it we because I had nothing to do with it? I didn't know anybody who wanted, who didn't want blacks around. So am I associated with that? Do people walk through that rotunda and get reminded every day of how bad it used to be? Or do you say, glass half full, it's gotten better. But then you hear how African-American participation in baseball is down. Minority representation is not down. It's up because of obviously all the Latin players. So you think about these things, and I wonder whether fans do. Or do you just walk past without noticing? So then it got me thinking about running around Central Park. There's a sculpture, there's a statue of Fred Lebo. I may be saying his name wrong. Very famous runner from the Roadrunners Club in New York. One of the founders of really running, Central Park running. There are statues all over Central Park that I run by. How many times do you run by something and you don't even look or drive by something and you don't even realize that you've driven by it because you do it every day and you have no idea what it stands for or no idea why it's even there? How many times do you walk through a city and see a plaque and you don't read it, you don't think about it? But at the time, to the people who got the plaque at the time of the dedication, how important it was, how meaningful it was, what change happened? I was thinking about this nonstop as I was thinking about the show today. And it can be overwhelmingly depressing when you think about legacy, when you think about what your role is. And I don't mean me personally, I mean the capital your. Thinking about what we are doing today and whether or not it's going to be remembered tomorrow. I've told you on this show that I've asked you all to name your great grandparents, all of your great grandparents, and how that's only three generations. Pretty soon, you will be a great-grandparent. You may be alive. You may not be alive. How long will you be remembered? It's just all things that if you get bogged down by it, you're going to become paralyzed. So here's the best advice I can give you. If you don't do things for the sole purpose of tomorrow, you are way more apt to be successful today. And that may sound counterintuitive to you because people say you've got to build your career. You've got to build relationships. You've got to build rebar into what you're doing so you can provide permanent steel so there can be resolve. But everything eventually gets taken down. Every stadium gets replaced. Everybody gets forgotten. Even the people who you assumed would never be forgotten because they are right there with a statue they do. Today at City Field, Tom Seaver on opening day on Jackie Robinson Day, Steve Cohen and the Mets are going to unveil a Tom Seaver statue outside of City Field. Tom Seaver, terrific Tom. 
Do you know who that is? What do you know about him? Did you watch him? Do you recognize the name? Maybe take a minute today to read something about Jackie Robinson. Read something about Tom Seaver. Maybe take a minute today to think about the death and destruction from nine years ago in the Boston Marathon, which is an uncomfortable segue to where I'm headed tomorrow, to not run it. But I'm going to be there to cheer people on, including Dave McGilvery. Nine years ago was that bombing. I was sitting, <laughs> I was sitting in Mike Hill's office, and we were talking, and it was, we know it's Boston Marathon Day because we ran the marathon together in Boston in 2009. And this was 2013. So we're in the new ballpark. It's the beginning of the season. I don't remember whether or not there was a home game that day. I just remember that we we had a TV because we put TVs in the offices in theory to watch baseball. But you're watching all sorts of other crap anyway. And all of a sudden, the news breaks in of the bombing. And it was right where we had run, right at the finish line. And we had been there only recently. And that was that was a tough one. That was a tough one, Coca. Because every every time something bad happens, there's a subway shooting, right? Or there's a plane crash. Don't we all do the same thing? You just picture yourself being there during that particular time. You picture, my God, what if this is me? Then historical things happen, whether it's Jackie Robinson, whether it is the Boston Marathon bombing, whether it's Tom Seaver. The fact of the matter is we all engage in news differently but then what we try to do, which is sort of interesting to me, we all try to figure out where we fit. There's movies about it. There's books about it. People generally say it's just with teenagers. But for me, where we fit continues. Every day I think about where do I fit? Where does nothing personal fit in the landscape of podcasts? Where do me and Coke fit in terms of producer and, and podcaster? And where, where, what are we doing? Where are we going? How can we make it better? We're always looking for future. Does it stop us from doing the best show we can today? Take a minute and recognize that it's been 75 years. 75 years. What have we accomplished? Plenty. What do we have left? Everything. Where do we start? Today. Okay. So we've been covering a topic for you guys since the beginning because it's European football. It's a pretty big deal, actually, the Chelsea sale that's going on. And we covered a bunch of topics and we laughed with you. Remember when the Ricketts family, who owns the Cubs, they were flying over to Chelsea and they were meeting with supporters and they were promising, I promise you we'll never leave Stratford-on-Avon. I promise you that we will always give you a seat at the table and we're never going to be racist because that's our father. And they made all these promises. And there were four Americans who came, who are the final bidders for that Russian oligarchs team who claims that he's only taking net proceeds. He's not even going to take any of his money back that he lent to the team. And I told you, yeah, whatever. So it's getting to be time when the Chelsea deal is going to happen. So today, Tom Ricketts, the owner of the Cubs and his family, they decided not to submit a final bid to buy Chelsea. And so what's interesting to me is they had to give you an excuse, right? Because it's it's a public nature of the deal. 
But how many times do you go kick the tires on something, whether it's a couch, a TV, a car, a business? I can go all the way up the socioeconomic line, right? And you just say, eh, not today. I'm not feeling it. That looks pretty good on me, but no, nah, I'm not going to buy it. But for whatever reason, Ricketts felt he had to give a quote. And he said, in the process of finalizing the proposal, it became clear that certain issues could not be addressed given the unusual dynamics around the sales process. Do you know what that's translated to? In a deal, there's something called reps and warranties. I've explained on a previous show that a rep and a warranty is when, when you are buying something, the seller has to say, hey, these are the actual books. Not like in Washington with the Washington Comskins. These are the set of books. This is the revenue. These are our contractual liabilities. Here's the players we have under contract. Here's the corporate sponsors we have under contract. Here's how much it costs to run the stadium and this is all information and we are representing to you this is true. Well, do you know when you've got multiple bidders for a team, guess what you get to do? You get to take a watering can or a water bottle. We still don't have a water sponsor, Coca. Every day I've got to peel off the label. I'm not giving Poland Spring any attention because they don't give us any attention. Or this could be Zephyr Hills. Or maybe it's Fiji, although it's not Fiji, you tell from the bottle. So you can't really do Fiji, even though Fiji is good water. Because if you rip off the Fiji label, people still know it's Fiji. But this sort of plastic label, this could be Kirkland, for crying out loud. That's nothing personal with David Sampson on the YouTube channel. Check out, I don't know what minute we are on the show, Coke could tell you, maybe around minute 17, where I try to say, guess the water bottle without the label. But when you've got four groups or more bidding for your team, and I do know of what I speak, guess what you get to do? You get to take this water bottle and pour it all over the representations and warranties. You get to water them down to the point where you're saying, hey, caveat emptor, good luck. I'm not saying that anything I told you is true. It may be true. It may not be true. You've got the documents, you've got the information, you decide for yourself, good luck. That is the most watered down reps and warranties. There are all sorts of levels of represent representations and warranties, but it would seem to me that Mr. Ricketts said, hmm, this seems like a lot of billions of dollars to spend. I can't borrow the money. I can't tell how much Abramovich is gonna be involved. I can't tell how much the British government is gonna be involved. I'm not sure I can bid on this. Bye-bye. That leaves three groups, three consortiums. Where do you think it ends up? Didn't we have a way to see that Ricketts was not getting Chelsea? If we didn't, we should have. I really believe that. So I told you that we'd get back to the $518,000 ball, and I don't want to not get back to it. Sorry, Coca. Don't be upset. This changes the order slightly. But it, I was just reminded of representations and warranties and caveat emptor and what it means when you buy something. Did you see that the person who bought the ball, the Tom Brady ball for $518,000, his last touchdown pass of his illustrious Hall of Fame storied career, guess what? He got his money back. The sale was voided by mutual consent of the seller and the buyer because guess what? Tom Brady is not retired. And I have one thing to say about this. 
horse hockey. When you buy a piece of memorabilia, you're buying what you think is an authentic piece of memorabilia. That ball was, in fact, a touchdown pass from Tom Brady's hands to a Bucks wide receiver named Mike Evans. How do you know it's the last one? Because he retired? What if he came back in three years? What if he's an assistant head coach slash owner of the Miami Dolphins? There's four injuries. They activate Brady from the coaching staff practice squad when he's 59 years old and goes back. Everybody says, let him get one more. Goes back to pass. Touchdown. He gets one more touchdown in the books. Do you then get your money back 10 years later, 15 years later? When you buy a piece of memorabilia, the only thing that you're guaranteed is authenticity. You're not guaranteed. Let me give you an example. I bought a piece of memorabilia that was a piece of paper signed by every member of the 500 Home Run Club. Great. That is pretty damn cool. Uh Uh-oh. There's now more members of the 500 Home Run Club. I don't have all of them on the paper Wait a minute, what do I have? I've got toilet paper now. I don't have the entire 500 home run club. Can I get my money back? No chance, toilet pants. You could use it as toilet paper. I mean, I still have the autographs of some cool people. What about when you buy a piece of art? That looks like a Picasso. Yeah, I think it's Picasso. Hey, do your homework. Is that a Picasso? Maybe. Looks like a Picasso. Let's do some studying. Let's watch the documentary, The Lost Leonardo, and try to see whether or not it's actually Picasso or Leonardo da Vinci. Yeah, I'll give you $10 million, $5 million, $50,000. Oh, Christ. My granddaughter did that. Sorry. My bad. My bad. That's worth about $7.50. Ah, crikeys. I want my money back. Nope. I cannot believe that the auction house Leland's gave this person the ability to get out of that deal. Here's my hope. This is a terrible thing to say. Coke, I'm not going to say it, but just know I'm going to think it. I, If Brady gets hurt and doesn't, and I'm not wishing hurt on anybody, stop adding me, and this is not, not creating a hot take, but what if Brady does not throw another touchdown pass? Do you then go back and say, hey, I'll take it again for the 518? Or does the seller say, you know what? I'm going to find a different buyer, and I'm charging more than 518. Up yours. It's outrageous. Caveat emptor for crying out loud. You bought it. You have it. Deal with it. All right, when we come back, let's take a break, Coca. When we come back, we're going to review a documentary that I watched, and we're going to talk about two things that happened while I was watching the documentary, and it involved an emotion that I don't like feeling at all. And then we're going to talk about, we have to, we have to talk about Shohei Otani. We're not going to talk about Otani. God, I can't get the tune. What's the tune to that song? We don't talk about Otani. I'm trying to do the Encanto song. Is it, we do talk about Otani? Whatever. We'll be right back. (laughs) It's happening daily. We're being conned by the institutions we used to trust. The mainstream media is distracting us with meaningless headlines instead of focusing on the harsh realities facing American families. Time is short before something big happens, and that's why so many folks are preparing. They're becoming self-reliant by investing in emergency food storage from My Patriot Supply. 
Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure four-week emergency food kits for each member of your family. Each kit contains tasty breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Save $50 on each four-week food kit you purchase. Plus, get free shipping on Ready Hour four-week emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour foods. At My Patriot Supply, you can also get solar power generators, water filtration units, heirloom seeds, and survival gear. Order by 3 p.m. and your unmarked boxes ship the same day. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com Welcome back to Nothing Personal. I'm looking up the lyrics to the Encanto song because it's pretty funny. It's We Don't Talk About Bruno. I didn't look it up. It's a very short break. You may think it's a long break because you had to get through that gauntlet of commercials. For me, it's about a quarter of a second. Hey, we're going to go to break. Hey, welcome back. It's like that. Thank you for watching, listening, reviewing, paying attention, loving nothing personal, telling people about it. Watch a movie every day, TV show, TV series. I watched a documentary called Harry Chapin, When in Doubt, Do Something. I want to talk about Harry Chapin. I want to talk about two things about him. One, he wrote a song that you all know, Cats in the Cradle and the Silver Spoon. Little boy blue and the man in the moon. When he coming home, dad, I don't know when. We'll get together then, yeah. I don't listen to that song anymore. And I stopped listening to that song when I became that song. And the reason that song was written is so many of us become that song. There is no song that hurts me more than Cats in the Cradle. I am that. I was out busy trying to make a living and trying to provide for my kids and my children would want me to do things and I didn't do them, wasn't present, was away on the road with the team. When I wasn't with the team, I was out running races around the road, whatever I was doing, I was not there. And now I am the father to adult kids. And when I call them, they're all busy doing their own thing. And they say to me what I said to them. So Cats in the Cradle, I watched this documentary knowing that it would impact me in a way that I didn't want to discuss on the show. And of course, it's the show, so I do tell you everything that's going on in my crazy head. I watched this because I wanted at that moment to feel badly and angry and sad. And I don't know why I would torture myself that way. Because when that song comes on the radio, I switch the channel. I don't want to be reminded of the path that I took and the impact it has had and the impact it will now have and whether or not that chain will be broken. Will my kids be better parents than I was? Will my grandkids treat their parents, my kids, in a way that my kids don't treat me, which is totally deserving given the way I treated them? Does the cycle continue? We talk about how generations of abuse, whether it's alcohol or drugs or domestic violence or people acting, you turn into your parents at some point some people want to avoid it so much that they overcompensate that they turn into something else. It is the most bizarre, bizarre part of life is when you wake up one day in your 30s, 40s, or 50s, or 60s, or 70s, if you're lucky, and you say, wow, how did I get here? And how did I not know that this is where I was going to get to? The documentary is about the life of Harry Chapin, a life that I was not aware of. He's one of the great storytellers. He's got amazing songs. I listen to his other music. There's a song called Taxi, a song called Better Place to Be. Side note, Coca, side story, sorry. I worked at a law firm called Simpson Thatcher as a paralegal before I started law school. And as a paralegal, what you're doing back then, I was bait stamping 
documents. There was a huge lawsuit going on between two companies, two cable companies, I believe, and I had to stamp these documents. I'm talking about hundreds of thousands of documents because they, there was no electronic document discovery back then. It's literally boxes. You go into a room, you feel like Joe in Joe versus the Volcano. There's terrible light, even though you're a big-time law firm, and you're getting paid a decent wage to do it. But it's, it's fake light and you just sit there with a group of people and you're stamping documents and you're logging them so the lawyers can know, hey, document number 69,426. Oh, that's the memo between Dr. Who and Dr. Seuss. Yes. So that was my job. And we would do it for hours and I was paid hourly but could get overtime and I wanted to make more money. So I would sit there for 12 hours a day, 14 hours a day. What else was I going to do? But I was going a little slower than other people because I was reading the documents. Many of the paralegals, they just, that was their job and they didn't care what the documents said. I wanted to read them because I wanted to learn. I knew I was going to law school. So I would taught myself so many things by reading all of these documents. But we had, there was a woman named Rose. Hi, Rose. I'm sure you don't remember me, but I bet you do. And there was a man named Steve. I'm sure you don't remember me, but maybe you do. I don't even know where you are. It has been far more than 20 years. This was uh, 1989. So that's over 30 years ago. You know who you are. We used to play on loop the Harry Chapin song, Better Place to Be. You should check out that song. But the other part about Harry Chapin's life is how involved he was trying to end hunger, trying to end poverty. He ended up in a terrible financial position because he did so many free concerts and free appearances for charity during the course of his year that his manager and his family could not believe that he was so unwilling to take care of himself financially. So involved in politics, put on committees by the president. It's a fascinating documentary. If you can get past the problem of cats in the cradle, watch When in Doubt Do Something. It's the story of Harry Chapin's life. Okay, did you see what Kyler Murray came out with yesterday? That baseball player who was drafted by the Oakland A's and then decided to play football and played quarterback for the Phoenix Cardinals or the Arizona Cardinals or the St. Louis Cardinals, some Cardinal team. He's got one year left on his rookie deal. And for some reason, he thought it would be good to come out and say, hey, I'm not gonna play without a new contract. And I, I lost it because Kyler Murray is an example of this player empowerment, this player entitlement. You've got a contract play. It's your job. No, I don't feel like it. I want an extension. Are you aware that Kyler Murray has the same agent as his coach? Remember we told you that? And then Cliff, the coach, the good looking guy who was sitting in his couch during a draft and everyone said, ooh, I want to be that guy. That guy looks way too good looking to be a coach. Yeah, that guy got an extension and Murray didn't. And then he released an Instagram post explaining what he means to the team. His agent released like a two-page mission statement written by Tom Cruise about how important he is and how accomplished he's been for the Cardinals. Then he scrubbed all the Cardinal stuff out of his Instagram. Then he put it back in. What a joke. The guy's been in the league three years. Yes, they won 11 games. I'm super proud of you, Kyler. That's really great. You, you, you've, 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 you've turned the fortunes of your team. 
you're doing your job. And your job is to play under your fourth year. And I got a surprise for you. Your team has an option for you on a fifth year. And guess what? They're going to exercise the option. Good luck. You want to sit out two years? Please do, Kyler. Disappear. Why don't you go play baseball? Pull a Jordan. Just go away. Get back into the draft. Do the A's still own your rights? Sign with the A's. See if you can make the big leagues. See if you can make arbitration. See how long it would take. See how long it would take for you to make the amount of money in baseball that you're making in football. Here's what football needs to do during the next collective bargaining negotiations that they're going to have. Make everybody one-year deals. Because what Deshaun Watson did now has given hope to all these players. Hey, you can play wherever you want, get out of whatever contract you want. You can even sexually harass and commit crimes maybe, although it may not be a crime, but you can get sued civilly. Don't worry, you're going to be rich. You, if, you're, if you're one of the best, just hold out. Just wait, and you'll get to play wherever you want, or you'll get the new contract you want. Is that the kind of sport that Roger Goodell and the owners want? I'll bet you a dollar it's not. Back on March 2nd, I told you that Kyler Murray would not get an extension before the season. I'm not taking the yes because we still have time. He could still sign an extension. That wait to see will come true or not true on day one of the regular season that's upcoming. But football's got a serious problem. Do you think it's good for the sport when the stars sit out? No. Do you think it's good for a sport when the owners who are signing the contracts think that they're getting the player for a certain number of years but don't? No. Something's got to give and it's going to. All right, nothing personal pick of the day. Did you see it? Did you watch Otani? We're 45 and 36 because I told you that something was going on with Shohei Otani. For two years, I've been talking to you about it is almost impossible, almost impossible to be an all-star pitcher and an all-star hitter. Shohei Otani was the unanimous AL MVP. I did not choose him to be the MVP this year because if you're going to keep giving it to him every year just because he pitches and hits, then he'll just win it every year. But I chose Guerrero, who, by the way, followed up his three-home run game against the Yankees with a four-strikeout game against the Yankees. God, I love baseball. If you can't handle failure and if you get yourself too excited after a good game, you're totally screwed because baseball will humble the greatest of superstars every day, all day long. Otani's had a tough start to the season. He can't pitch. He can't hit. And the problem is, when you are worried about pitching, you will not be able to focus on hitting. When you're worried about hitting, you will not be able to focus on pitching. It is a full-time job to be a starting pitcher. It is a full-time job to be a hitter. I give so much credit to the players who are gold glove defenders and hit for average and power. It is so hard to be good at more than one thing in a sport like baseball. It just is. Picture, this is the equivalent to me. Picture being a all-pro left guard and an all-pro defensive tackle. It's just hard to do. So Otani got his absolute ass kicked, and I felt badly for him, but not really because we won our pick of the day. If you are running the Angels right now, let me give you a nugget of what's happening with Shohei Otani. 
If you are running the Angels and you've got Shohei Otani on your team, and you plan on giving him the ball every six days and letting him be the DH the other five days, and you have not made the playoffs in multiple years, and your best player, the face of baseball, Mike Trout, has not won a playoff game in his career, at what point do you look in the mirror and say, we have to make a choice? We've got to do what's best for our team, not for the excitement that is Shohei Otani. Because are we running a circus or are we trying to get rings? The Angels have been unwilling and unable to make that decision, and they have paid the price for that through bad contracts given to players who have been overpaid year after year, lack of performance. Now they've got one of the great jewels in Major League Baseball, times two in Mike Trout and Shohei Otani. And if they continue to misuse Otani, the luster that is Otani will fade like a comet. It's your move, Artie. What are you going to do? We've got a great weekend of sports coming up. All right, let's talk about baseball because we got a game tonight, Blue Jays-A's. The Blue Jays just won three of four. Uh, the A's just won, excuse me, four, six, 69. We've got Blue Jays-A's playing. Very interesting series. The Blue Jays just come off a very emotionally charged series against the Yankees. The A's just won three of four over the previously undefeated Tampa Bay race. So what's what happens? Is letdown a real thing? It is. Believe it or not, players, even this early in the season, when they are on a team that is good but not great, they've got playoff aspirations but not championship aspirations, you tend to focus on certain teams, certain games more than others. The Blue Jays are not that team. The Blue Jays don't have playoff aspirations. They want to win it all, and they've got the team to win it all. When you are in that position, you cannot allow yourself to be let down. You've got to beat the bad teams. Do you want to know the definition of a mediocre team? A mediocre team plays really well against the good teams, wins its share of games, but against teams they should crush, they don't sweep them. If you're going to be great and win 100 games, you have to crush teams that you should be crushing. The Blue Jays are a better team than the Oakland A's hard stop. Marcotte's got them off to a good start, no question. But over the long run of this season, the Blue Jays finish way ahead of the A's, and it starts with a win this year. Blue Jays over the A's. Saturday, we start the game once. NBA playoff start. None of this play-in stuff. None of these made-up games. It's playoff time. I'm so sad. I can't even do that. I, I can't even watch the Jazz Mavericks series or the game because Luka's not playing. He's going to skip game one. He's calf strain or something. But I'm focused on the Grizzlies and the T-Wolves. The reason I'm focused on the T-Wolves is that they had an emotional win in the play-in tournament against the Clippers. They have a player on their team named Pat Beverly. Do you know who that is? He played for the Clippers, and then he was traded and then traded, and he ended up on the Timberwolves. He said the Timberwolves were going to make the playoffs, but they stunk, but then they made the playoffs. They're in the playoffs, and he beat the Clippers to get there. He made some comments after the game, post-game media availability. He was fined $30,000. Adam Silver, what are you doing? 
You're finding a player $30,000 for what you described as excessive profanity? Because he dropped an F-bomb, an A-double-S-bomb, talking about a team that he wanted to beat so badly because he felt disrespected by them? Be better, Adam. People like this. They want this. They're not doing it on the court. He's not making dirty plays. Now, if he took out Paul George, let's say, or if he did something inappropriate during the course of a game, I want you to find him, suspend him, get rid of him because you are doing something to hurt a player and therefore hurt the product. But bulletin board material? Come on, man. That's not a $30,000 fine. But there is a letdown. Remember we talked about letdowns with the Jays and the A's? The Timberwolves do not have championship aspirations. The Grizzlies do. Grizzlies minus seven over the Wolves in game one. We're taking the Grizzlies. Sunday, we've got the big series, Celtics-Nets. Which way should we go? At one point, I thought the Nets would beat the Celtics. I watched the Nets play. And if Irving's going to shoot 12 for 15, and then you've got Durant and maybe Ben Simmons for games four through six, I think that's a negative for the Nets. Ben Simmons comes back. It changes the chemistry. He's a plus defender, but that's about it. You think he's going to play his first game in two years and have an impact on the series? The Celtics are a far deeper team, better quality one through 15 than the Nets. Hot right now. But can you beat Kevin Durant four out of seven times? I'm just throwing it out there. Can any team beat Durant four out of seven times? Well, yes. And it's the Boston Celtics. Celtics minus four over the Nets in game one. Nets are the popular choice. But I'll give you a way to see right now. The Boston Celtics will win the series over the Nets. Yes, they will. All right. Coca, play me some music. You know what I want? <laughs> I want to talk to Samson. So you want to talk to Samson? It's a Friday. Light up a J. Get yourself 15, 17s baked. It's from a movie called Half Baked. There's a character named Samson. Get into Twitter at David P. Samson. Ask a question. And I may say it. Since the Marlins had their home opener, can you talk about the opening of Marlins Park 10 years ago? If you had a do-over, would you take it? Hi, my name's David Sampson. Here's how the opener for Marlins Park worked. We had an owner named Jeffrey Loria. We had a superstar celebrity in Miami named Emilio Estefan. We had a manager, the guy who manages Siegfried and Roy and Emilio Estefan, one of the brilliant minds of Vegas, creative minds named Bernie Human. They all got together and they said, you know what? Let's make opening day of Marlins Park. Let's make it Miami. We gave you a Miami ballpark. It's very colorful. There's art all over. We've got this great home run sculpture. We've got different colored quadrants, the signage. Every, we've got the Clevelander. We've got a pool. We've got painted naked women. We are Miami. For the opening of the ballpark, Let's do something unbelievably Miami. And by the way, Jeffrey, Bernie Human said, Muhammad Ali is my client. I've been in Muhammad's corner for four decades. You want him to open your ballpark? Jeffrey Lurie said, Muhammad Ali is my hero. Are you telling me that Muhammad Ali would be willing to come to Miami and throw out a first pitch? 
Bernie Eumann said, of course he would. All it takes is a donation to his foundation. And then he'll come because I'm Bernie Eumann. And meanwhile, Emilio will put together this incredible pregame show. We'll have women in feathers, scantily clad. It'll be totally Miami. We'll have music playing. We'll have different areas of the ballpark engaged. We'll have the players escorted onto the line. We'll bring Muhammad Ali out. He'll throw out the first pitch, and boom, the success starts. We've got Showtime filming it. We've got free agents signed. We've got our own opening night. We're the only game in town. We are the first game of the season, and we were not even the world defending World Series champions. It was part of a negotiation that we did with baseball, saying we must have the first game, and they had an agreement with ESPN that we would. Everything was perfect. We bring Muhammad Ali, gets to the ballpark. Muhammad Ali, as happens, was not having a great day. Wasn't feeling great. He was suffering terribly from Parkinson's, and he had his own green room, his own area. We went in to see Muhammad Ali. I was in the presence of greatness in a way that I could not explain how that felt. And we were trying to do anything we could to make him comfortable. Meanwhile, I'm worried about the opening of the ballpark. I'm worried about running out of hot dogs. I'm worried about concession lines. I'm worried about parking. I'm worried about the team. I'm worried about all the guests because we have hundreds of people that are being flown in. It's gonna be a sellout. It's on national television. All these things are happening. We got a flyover. I'm worried about the pregame ceremonies, the timing. Everything is going on. We've got cameras everywhere filming. Muhammad Ali goes into the clubhouse and meets with players. He's not saying much. But the players have this sense of awe that they are in a room with the greatest of all time. Jeffrey's in the clubhouse. I bring my son into the clubhouse, which I wouldn't do that close to a game ever. But this was, he got a chance to get a picture with Muhammad Ali. Muhammad Ali almost didn't take the field for that first pitch, and we got mercilessly criticized because we thought we were told that we were exploiting Muhammad Ali, that we were showing him in one of his last public appearances before he died as something less than the greatest. Well, I've got a hint for you, and I've got a little update for you. I've thought about that opening of Marlins Park every day since Marlins Park opened. I've thought about the strike one from Josh Johnson. I've thought about where I was when the strike happened. I thought about the emotion I felt for the accomplishment of saving baseball in Miami from getting this new ballpark opened. I thought about the loss that day. I thought about the disastrous season that it was and what it led to. I think about it every day. I'm not over it. But Muhammad Ali wouldn't have taken the field if Muhammad Ali didn't want to take the field. Muhammad Ali wouldn't have taken the field if his family who was there didn't want him to take the field. Muhammad Ali would not have taken the field if his longtime manager, Bernie Eumann, would not have wanted him to take the field. Everything we did that day was in complete cooperation with the complete permission of Muhammad Ali and his family. We were not exploiting him. We were sharing him. And for those who wrote or saw it who said how sad it was, Why don't you look at things slightly differently? Why don't you say, wow, I got a chance to be in close proximity to the greatest of all time. I don't regret one thing about opening day. I regret a whole lot of things about after, a whole lot of things before. 
but I wouldn't redo one thing about opening day other than the one thing that I control the least. I wish that on April 4th, 2012, that the Marlins would have beaten the Cardinals. But other than that, it is a memory that I and 39,000 other people and hundreds and th thousands and millions of others are able to remember and enjoy. And as the Marlins opened their season yesterday and I, with a win over the Phillies, I was looking at the stands. I was looking at the smiles, at the kids, with their parents, at families who were enjoying the game. They didn't care that the Marlins were one and four. They didn't care whether there's a home run sculpture or not, or that Derek Jeter was gone, or that David Sampson was gone. We're just all moments in time, memories. What they cared about is that they were having a present. They were having a now moment. They were making a memory with their family, with their children, parents. That's why we did what we did. For the millions of people going forward to enjoy the fact that we were all able to work together to get a ballpark done. Okay, I want everyone to have a great weekend. Reminder, Monday, I will be at the Boston Marathon. We have a show for you, and it's a pretty special show. Wait for it. I can't spoil it, but it's going to be really, really cool. But it's taped. Tuesday, we're going to be live, but it's going to be a little bit later because I'm waking up Monday, Tuesday morning to take a very, very early train from Boston back to New York. So we're not going to be able to do nothing personal until a little bit later in the day, like around 10, 30, 11. It may not be out till lunchtime, but we will be back on Tuesday, God willing. Everyone have a safe, great weekend. And remember, it's just business. This is nothing personal. 